Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hello, and welcome once again to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and in this podcast, my guest tells me the five things from their life that they would choose to bury in a time capsule to preserve them. Well, four things they wish to preserve because they cherish them, but also one thing that they would like to be rid of, something they would be pleased to bury in the ground and never have to think about again. My very special guest in this episode is the one and definitely only Barry Cryer, a panellist on BBC Radio 4's Sorry I Haven't a Clue since 1972. I mean, basically, it's enough to just say Barry Cryer. I don't really need to say much more. But for the one or two of you who may not be familiar with this great man, Barry started his career at the famous Windmill Club in London, performing his comedy act between nude tableau shows. But it's his career as a writer which is most astonishing. The performers he's written for include, note the word include, Dave Allen, Stanley Baxter, Jack Benny, Rory Bremner, George Burns, Jasper Carrot, Tommy Cooper, Les Dawson, Dick Emery, Kenny Everett, Sir Bruce Forsyth, Sir David Frost, Bob Hope, Frankie Howard, Richard Pryor, Spike Milligan, Mike Yarwood, The Two Ronnies and Morecambe and Wise. Barry was in the parody Beatles film starring the Ruttles, All You Need Is Cash, with Eric Idle. He's had his own episode of This Is Your Life. He's a member of the Grand Order of Water Rats, appeared as the waiter in the very first performance of Monty Python's famous Four Yorkshiremen sketch on a precursor to Python at last the 1948 show. He has an honorary degree from his alma mater, the University of Leeds, was awarded an OBE in 2001 and has had a number one hit in Finland with the song Purple People Eater. You remember that one. And if you don't, congratulations. And all those astonishing facts don't even scratch the surface of this amazing man's life. 
which is why this is part one of this podcast. It was so crammed that we decided to make it into two episodes. Typically, Barry thought that the best place to do this rather intimate and gentle interview about the details of his life was his local pub in Hatch End. So I'm afraid the background noise can get a little bit rowdy. Well, it is a Weatherspoons. You join our conversation with Barry talking about the funeral of his old Monty Python friend, Terry Jones. It was long and solemn apart from Mike Palin. And I said, Terry would have edited it and something very silly would have happened in the middle, like an explosion or yeah. a horse coming in. Somebody naked. We were all... He was always yes. doing naked. Mike told me when they did which... Which Python film was it? Life of Brian? Or, no, not Life of Brian. The, anyway, it doesn't matter. Terry was naked, but he was also the director. So Mike said, switching from one gear to another, it never bothered him. He's naked with a long beard, talking to the crew, you know, and they're all trying to keep a straight face. <laughs> These people are wonderful and one-offs. We all knew each other in the Frost days, the whole gang of us. Did you write for the Frost? Or oh, Yes. Uh, I called him a practising catalyst. <laughs> Frost was superb with people. He'd got a computer in his head, he knew everybody's name. And there was a <clears throat> whole of Python before they were Python, the goodies before they were the goodies. Great old professionals like Keith Waterhouse and Dick Bosman, the American. And we all knew each other then, 50 yeah. years ago. It's a long time, isn't it? And we, uh, Ronnie Corbett, Ronnie Barker. I'll, I'll make this quick. I met Ronnie Corbett the first day I met my wife <laughs> and tossed a coin and married her. <laughs> and it was a nightclub called Winston's, Clifford Street off Bond Street. Yeah. Danny LaRue was the star of the cabaret before he had his own club. And Ron and I were there. And Dan would go off for pantomime every year and Ron and I would write a replacement show. And that's where he met his wife, Annie, Ronnie. And uh, Dan always said, I won't be back, I'll have my own club. And it never happened. And it suddenly did. And he got this place in Hanover Square. So one night we, we left Winston's. There was a fight going on, two gangs had turned up. And uh, the next day, the Sunday, we were dress rehearsing at Dan and Rue's new club and I was writing the shows. But the people you met at Winston's, Mike, I knew Ronnie and Reggie. And they knew that Terry, my darling, was in the show and we were newly married. This was a nice girl. So a man got smacked very hard in the face one night for saying bloody in front of Terry. Wow. You killed people, but that was business. You did not swear in front of a nice girl. And Ron was on the little glass stage at Winston's one night and somebody threw a bread roll and hit him in the face, Ronnie Corbett. Yeah. And he threw it back and hit Ronnie Cray in the face. Oh, my God. But they laughed. It was Ronnie. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, mate. Did everybody freeze? They used to invite you somewhere. This is 3 a.m. after our show. I used to lie and go, oh, mate, I'm going to be up early in the yeah. morning filming. Don't go anywhere with them. You're on your own territory here with Danny and the gang. Stay there. Don't go anywhere with the craze. God knows what would happen. Now go down east. That's right. Yeah. And Charlie Richardson, the big rival, another gang. Absolutely. The, the, the Civil War. Southeast London, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. But having said all this, my, I mean, I'm so grateful the people I met. You couldn't yeah. make it up. The craze. And, I know. 
I wonder went up to Newcastle once. I said, I've already heard this. They thought we could broaden our territory. The lively club scene and a lot going up in the northeast. Mm. Ronnie and Reggie went to Newcastle to meet the um, um, local boys, and the story went round. They go to an hotel in a private room or something, and one of the locals came in and put an axe on the table <laughs> and said, what do you want to talk about? <laughs> they came back to London empty-handed the craze. Oh, what an era that was. But then you went to Danny LaRue's club and you never saw villains. Was that with a gentry turned up? Oh, yes, and the showbiz legends, Noel Cow and Judy Gullard and Burton and Taylor and wow. Margaret and Snowden, the people that came to the club. And I said to a, a, a man, pretty wealthy businessman one night in the club, I said, it's a bit dull here, we don't get the villains who used to get at Winston's. And he said, who do you think's running this place? Uh, and I never knew what he meant. No, and he didn't ask. You couldn't say to the craze, do not go to Danny LaRue's club, surely. No. no. A retired cop used to come in here called Dick Manley. It's not wonderful. Mm. The joke was in the phone book, he's Manly Dick. <laughs> <laughs> my introduction to London, of course, I was working at the windmill. Soho was my... When was that, just after the war? This was uh, 1957. 57, yeah. And I was at the windmill... I met a man called Bruce Forsyth. I never found out what happened to him. No, I've never heard of him. And we became mates six shows a day, six days a week. Mm. I was bottom of the bill, 12 minutes. 36 shows a week. Wow. And they hadn't come to see you. They'd come to see the nudes, yeah. not strippers. And you learned to die with dignity. It cheered up later in the day when they came in from the pub. But there was a Geordie called uh, Jimmy... Oh, he'll come to me. He went on one afternoon, and a guy in the front row opened a newspaper. He said, Oh, I see you brought your own comic. <laughs> and then Bruce in the canteen one day said, Oh, I'm packing it in. I said, What? Got as far as I've got to get, I've got to pack it in. I said, What are you going to do? He said, Nice little shop, tobacconist or something. 1958, I see my friend is now a new composer of Sunday Nights of the Lady. I'm walking down Kingsway and he's walking towards me. He's just been to a press conference. His first one was coming up that Sunday. Those days, millions of viewers, live television. It was an enormous and he went, ah. And I said, what's happened to the back in this? He said, postponed. Ah, bless him. And they're showing Sunday Night to Palladiums now on Talking Pictures Channel. I'm not surprised. Some of them were extraordinary. He oh. did that amazing one where there was the strike. Norman Wisdom, and they did Norman the show. Wisdom. And they did the old routines. They did the wallpaper routine. They did everything. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? Tell me your history, then, because basically I'm looking to find five things in your life. Oh, five things. Five things in your life. Just five little sort of, in a way, snapshots of yeah. your life. What really sticks out for you, though, if you think about it? My father died when I was five, and my brother was away in the Merchant Navy. It was me and my mother. Yeah. And I was a photograph of my father on a shelf at home. That's all I've got. I know what he looked like. Mm. You could play a tone of his voice, I wouldn't recognise it. And I remember he bought me a Bakelite fort with lead soldiers and uh, we made an air... Was it airfix plane, mm. I remember? Mm. I'm a, I was a little, little boy. Tiny little thing. And we made this 
paper and a box of plane, and I flew it, went straight in the fire. <laughs> and these are the memories of my father, but... And they're fleeting. And my mother would never speak of it, which hurts. And I'd have to talk to my aunties or people outside the family, and they'd tell me about what your father was like. And years later, I went up to Leeds, my hometown, Waddington's, I think, publishers, to do an after-dinner gig or something. Yeah. And a guy came up to me in the bar before the dinner and said, you John Cryer's son? I said, yeah. He said, oh, I knew him. I said, sit down, what are you drinking? Yeah, tell and me. he told me what a warm, funny man my father was. My mother never spoke about it. Do you think it was because it was too painful? Too painful. She was a one-man woman. Yeah, and he'd gone. And he'd gone. I think I never had a role model, so I must have been a bit... You'll notice me. And my father was a Masonic golf-playing accountant. Where did I come from? Goodness knows. I'm an old lefty. I've never voted Tory in my life. No. I tried golf and was a disaster. <laughs> Masons. <laughs> so, I built know, my own walls. My Thank DNA you very much. is fascinating. That's extraordinary. So, good to cheers. see you. And you'd love to see you. So, was, was your mum keen on, on that sort of thing? Or did you just sort of discover my you had was a wit? stereotype. Bless her heart. She was the mother and wife in the kitchen doing the cleaning and the cooking. That is what women did. And uh, I never heard her talk about politics or current affairs. Oh, you voted Conservative, that's what your husband did. And so you developed an interest in comedy, or did you just find you were funny? Well, I don't know. I think I was this... Well, I'm in touch with two guys I was at school with, for God's sake. They're yeah. my age. And uh, we talked about those days. And they said, you were the one who made the bully laugh. Comedy can be very defensive, yeah. right? You can protect yourself oh, with comedy. I don't want to use his name because we might get sued. A bully at school. He was a big, fat guy. And he used to whip us with wet towels when we went swimming. And we used to go on a tram and he'd crush you in the seat. And, oh, him, awful. Years later, through the Roger Club, I got warm greetings from him. Now a lord. No. I thought, if I ever meet you again... I'll be polite. I'll be looking at you going, I remember you. Yeah. Are you bullying your employees these days? Well, Leopards don't change their spots. No. I so don't I don't know what the moment of my father and the Bakelite fought and flying the plane into the fire. It's such a singular memory. And I was it? with a guy from Afghanistan, a, a car driver, uh, last year, and we were chatting away. And he said, uh, you married? I said, yeah, he's got children. I said, we've got four. He said, we've got five. And then he said, my dad died when I was young. And I shook hands. He wasn't driving at the time. <laughs> and we bonded because both of us had lost a father when we were very young. Yeah. And he said something to me I never forgot. He said, probably made us want to be a father. Wow. And we achieved the ambition of being married with children. And had you ever thought that? Yes, I had an ambition when I was young, not show business. I had a half-baked idea of writing and journalism. Yeah. I love telling jokes, but I never thought of it as a career. I had an ambition to be married with children. Mm. That was it. But yes, and writing something. And then I got to university, failed the Oxbridge trial, got into Leeds University. Um, BA England failed of Leeds University. <laughs> I could have done a couple of retakes. Chasing girls in the bar, I was ashamed. I let everybody down. And I thought, well, they've dumped me. 
and uh, I got a proper job, Leeds Highways Departments and everything. But I'd been in a student show at the Old Empire Theatre in Leeds, Rag Reviewers charity show, when I was at university. Mm. I've now left, or university's left me. They asked me back to produce and appear in this Rag Review. And a guy came up to Leeds to see somebody, not me, and saw me on the stage telling jokes mm. and offered me work. That wouldn't have happened if I hadn't been at university. No. But you're in the right place at the right time. It's often the case. It's often the case. I did the City Varieties Leeds, my hometown. Yeah, lovely theatre. I worked with strippers and toured around, and then uh, things faded away again. And I was working as a stagehand at the Empire Theatre in Leeds. Uh, the lads called me, oh, here's the toff, because I've been at university. <laughs> and... David Nixon, the magician, was yes. coming up to Leeds to do pantomime. And he and his wife drove up to Leeds separately. She had a heart attack and crashed and died driving up to Leeds. He drove past the crash and didn't recognise it. Good Lord. He got to Leeds, they told him it collapsed, and the doctors there and everybody said, I'm doing the pantomime for her. And the Empire Theatre manager, Leo Lyon, you couldn't make these names up. <laughs> He'd take the shine to me. He's the eccentric who was at university. He said, like, you are going to look after Mr Nixon. So I was his dresser assistant, and we became friends. And uh, He was the first big celebrity magician, wasn't yes, he? Yes, on, on before television. Paul Daniels, yes. I suppose. And uh, we became friends, and he'd have a nap between the matinee and the evening, and I would guard his dressing room door. And I remember one day I saw this man coming towards me. Bernard Delfont, oh, the man, yes. doing a tour of his pantomimes. Is Mr Nixon in? I said, terribly sorry, he's resting. And you know what Delfont said? Good boy. And he walked away. Wow. Isn't that nice? It is nice. He's doing his job. Good boy. And he walked away. And, and Nixon became a real friend. He said, get down to London. You're bloody stage struck. And... Uh, I went down to London with a 17-day rail return ticket. I'm going to conquer London in 17 days. <laughs> Either that or I'm out. Here again, you, you couldn't make it up, Mike. The day before the ticket ran out, I'm going back to Leeds with my tail between my legs. That doesn't work. I got an audition at the windmill right. and got the job. Fantastic. I'm so it was you, Bruce Forsyth, anybody else there at the time? Because there had but been the um, people, oh, Tony Hancock, Harry Seacombe, the goons, all the goons, Harry, yeah. yes, they all work there, didn't they? Tony Hancock, reminiscing on Radio Four X the other day, he said, first show was twelve fifteen. I was on at twelve eighteen. <laughs> I was the same. I was first on six shows that day. Into the deep end. Yeah, and there were conveyor belt auditions at the windmill. They wheeled you on and off. I auditioned at ten thirty in the morning, and uh, this voice it was Van Damme, VD, Vivian Van Damme. Thank you. So that's it. And a man came on the stage called John Law, who became a friend, dressing room twelve A. I said, "What?" He said, "You've got the job." One. I was on stage just after quarter past 12, doing what I did at my audition. Oh, my word. And the old man had me in his office between every show that day, between the fish tank and the desk, changed my act. He reassembled it. Yeah. That joke's very good. You tell it too early. Here's one you could do there. Oh, that song. Yes, I like the song. Changed my act in one day. 
Wow. And I rang my mother and said, I'm a windmill comedian. She had no idea what I was talking no. about. Lucky or what? Oh, and the man before me, bless his heart, about three minutes into his act, thank you. And I sent him off and he had to gather all his props together and I said, oh, mate. He said, oh, well. And I did my first day's work, six shows. And they said, does someone want to see you at the stage door? I thought, who knows, I'm here. <laughs> and it was that man who'd failed his audition before me. He came to the stage door and said, I hear you got the job. Well done. Oh, that's not lovely. That's lovely. And he'd failed. Some of these people that stick in your mind, what a lovely thing to say. I failed my audition, he got the job. We're not getting five moments, are we? No, I think I love the idea of that moment of being on stage and thinking you've failed and then being sent to your dressing room. Yeah, your heart must have left. Shot. Yeah. But and at the same time, terrifying. Because suddenly that's the start of your career as well, isn't it? That's oh, when you're the windmill, that yeah. was your apprenticeship. Yes. You weren't frightened of any audience after that. You knew about dying on stage. <laughs> oh, Tom O'Connor's story. Tom said, I'm dying in a club one night. Every joke, every line, I'm sweating, I'm humiliated, I want to get off. <laughs> and he said, I did one joke, and at the back of the uh, club, I heard... And he said, very sarcastically, I said, thank you, sir. And the man said, I was smacking the sauce bottle. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? Oh, that is brilliant. Les Dawson in the sweating early days playing the back room of a pub, he said, I'm dying. He said, I paused at one point and a voice at the back of the room said, used to be a pool table in here. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that's These got to be... Moments. That's got to be the apprenticeship that all comics go through. Even yeah. now, I think stand-ups... I go saw Jeremy Hardy the late. Oh, he became a good mate. Jeremy one night had a heckler and about the third time this man shouted at Jeremy Hardy he looked into the audience and said Simon, it's over <laughs> as if they were <laughs> oh and Johnny Hammond Blackpool comic yeah. has said he had the pissed heckler and he's up there and it's really getting to him, this guy shouted five times at him and then Johnny said, no this is not fair. I've got a spotlight in the microphone. That gentleman there is not. Can we just see that gentleman there? We owe it to him. <laughs> so the guy up there wakes up and swings a spotlight onto this man. And Johnny said, I didn't mean just the beam. Put the fucking thing on him. <laughs> These are great, aren't they? That's fantastic. I know. I do remember seeing at the Tunnel Club. Remember, did we go to the Tunnel Club? Oh, yes. Yeah. I remember seeing somebody come on very oh, nervously. died there, and Really died. And he came on and his, his first line was, I'm a schizophrenic. And this voice shouted, well, why don't you both fuck off then? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, Kirk Douglas has died. Yeah. And there was a son called Eric. Eric. Who, you know, there was Michael and another son. But Eric was the sort of other one, the unknown Perhaps one. he was the Viking. <laughs> well, here we go. And they told a story at Edinburgh years ago. Eric Douglas, his first gig there, because there was a few people in. I thought, Eric Douglas, what is this? And couldn't work out. And he's dying. He's doing his act and dying. Mm. And in desperation, he said to the audience, 
I'm Kirk Douglas's son. And the man in the audience stood up and went, no, I'm Kirk Douglas's son. And they all started standing up doing Spartacus. Oh, I'm brilliant. Kirk Douglas's oh, son. Oh, that's fantastic. But he did the Oscars with Michael once. Mm. He said, Dad, you don't say the winner is. You say the award goes to. So they're on the stage. He said, there you are, Dad. Gives his dad the envelope. And the winner is. <laughs> yeah, he knew about winning. But Dalton Trumbo, blacklisted writer, he used. He said, "They said you can't use him. I'm using him." Douglas went back off. He said, "No, I'm using him. I admire that." Yeah. And the Hollywood Ten and all that. Humphrey Bogart was a member of the original Hollywood Ten, and dropped out two days later, saying I was duped. Really. Suddenly the pressure was getting to in the yeah. studio. And, uh, and then you become terrified. We had Americans over here, didn't we? They worked on Robin Hood, Richard Green. They reckon it was Americans who wrote Robin Hood, Robin Hood, riding would, through the land. It would be, wouldn't it? It sounds very American. There were one or two little jokes in there. You think it's American. Oh, and I got to know uh, Larry Adler, the great. He'd been virtually blacklisted. Terrible. He wasn't called up formally, but they questioned him at one point, and he refused to answer whether or not he was a member of the Communist Party. And he said, for your information, the Communist Party is a legal political party. Mm. He wasn't a member of the Communist Party, but he refused to answer. And then things dried up, and he came here. That's why he was here a lot, I suppose. And his autobiography was originally called Name Drops Keep Falling on My Head. <laughs> Which I've stolen since Ooh, crediting it. Want to, and you? instead he called it It Ain't Necessarily So. But I thought, what a brilliant title. Name drops keep falling on my head. <laughs> he was an amazing harmonica player, wasn't he? Oh, Larry, yeah. Extraordinary. He didn't like the word harmonica. He told Did me. He? Mouth organ. Mouth organ. And name drops. When he was a kid, he was known for playing the mouth organ. He, he met Al Capone. Wow. And he said, Capone was really charming and nice. Capone masterminded killing people, but they said socially he was very popular. <laughs> <laughs> Great with people and smiling. Unless you upset him. Oh, um, Roger Kitter, the late, bless him, the actor, mm. went into uh, Bloom's restaurant years ago with Larry Adler. And they were waiting for their table, and Larry looked round and said, I came in here 40 years ago with Cole Porter, and the man behind the desk said, we're serving as fast as we can. <laughs> and Larry loved it. It wasn't his line, but he thought, what a line. Brilliant. I love it when um, the joke comes from the, the source that you just had expected mm. to. I'd use a line which is actually based on a John Morton story. He told me that he was auditioning for a television thing and they had a part in the piece which was for a, a fat lady and he'd written fat lady and he thought, I'll change that before we do all the auditions because it's a bit rude, but he forgot. And so when they auditioned, they had a lot of fat ladies lined up to come in and by the time the first one came in, they were about an hour behind. So these people had been sitting down in the foyer at the BBC for hours. And this large woman came in and he said to her, I'm, I'm really sorry about the wait. And she looked crestfallen. <laughs> and he went, no, no, I mean the amount of time that you... So if anybody ever says that to me in a shop or a restaurant, sorry about your wait. Yes. I, I always say, well, I'm trying to lose it. Yes. You get the I feed line. I can't resist line. it. I can't no, resist it. No, you get the feed line. Yeah. 
But real lifelines are the best, aren't yeah. they? Yeah. Um, Terry and I, my darling, were in Morrison's one day and a matching older couple walked past us. She was almost skipping. She said to him as they passed, only two more items, quite small. And as he passed me, the husband said, the excitement builds. <laughs> Isn't that? That is style. That is lovely, yeah. And I came out, which I'll do in a moment, Mike. I'm still smoking. Oh, yeah. And uh, I was going outside Morrison's to have a cigarette. Young mother with two young children. And I said, I'm not smoking near your children. She said, thank you very much. And I walked away. And she lit up. <laughs> Guy smoking a cigarette outside a pub. And an officious bugger came up and said, can't you see that sign? You can't smoke within six feet of the pub. He said, I'm drinking the one up the road. <laughs> <laughs> These are great, That's aren't they? Great. Yes. And uh, many years ago, cigarette commercials on television, they knew what they were doing there. Picture was a beautiful woman smoking a cigarette. Underneath it said, only a camel can satisfy me. Oh, my God. They were having a laugh then, weren't they? They must have done. Uh, get a Myers comfortable bed, the bed that makes you proud every time you make it. Oh, my God. I remember these are real commercials. Yes. They knew. They knew exactly what they were doing. Bernard Matthews turkeys. It looked all right in print. The man's voice. Bernard Matthews turkeys, Norfolk and good. <laughs> Never noticed that. <laughs> True. Oh, Fanny and Johnny Craddock. Oh, yes. Black and white telly, I think. A long way back. They'd do a recipe every week, and then Johnny would come on at the end and give you the address to write to if you wanted the recipe. <laughs> this week, they'd done donuts in every shape or form. Johnny came on at the end and said, here's the address to write to if you want your donuts to look like Fanny's. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful, isn't it? Oh, that's brilliant. Oh, and... So, well, I never stop. Southern Television. Please don't stop. Southern Television in the old days. Local news, local area weather forecast. Live, obviously. And the newsreader hands over to the weather forecast. No technology. A board on an easel with a letter stuck on with Velcro. And the forecast was fog. And the camera cut to the board and the effort fallen off. <laughs> And the viewers at home saw the word og. And the camera cut back to newsreader who said, Sorry about the effing fuck. <laughs> <laughs> oh, George Melly. George was congenitally deaf and told the drummer to play loudly. He could follow the beat and do the song. But he said uh, to me once, he said, We deaf people smile a lot because we haven't heard what you said, yes. but we pretend we have. And he go, Oh, really? Yes, I agree. Oh, Understood. And it's, I'm with this guy in a, a bar, and I'm going, yes, exactly. Oh, good gracious. And he said, the man said something. George said, I overdid it. And I went, fantastic. And he said, somebody took me away and said, George, he just told you his wife had done that. <laughs> a man said to his doctor, I think my wife's going deaf. I don't want to mention it, it's sort of tactless and insensitive. Any way I could sort of gauge it. And the doctor said, there is, you know. He said, choose a moment. She's got her back to you. 
say something in a normal voice. If she doesn't react, she'll get an idea about the hearing. Oh, right. Came home from work, day or two later. His wife's standing with a bat to him in the kitchen. He said, what's for dinner, love? No answer. Oh, boy, losing a bit. What's for dinner, love? No response. What's for dinner, love? Nothing. And now he's right behind her. And he said, what's for dinner, love? And she turned around and said, for the fourth time, chicken. That's it. Shame it. My wife loves that. No, not surprised. That's a yeah. beauty. Right, I'll be, I'm storming up. All right, then. For a breath of fresh air. And I'm going to get you a, a half. Half, another half. I'll leave that there. I'll pause it. Okay, sorry to interrupt, but I'm afraid we do need to take a break for some ads. And almost certainly for me and Barry to go to the loo. We'll be back in a moment. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, it's Sharon, and here's where it gets interesting. Raise your hand if you want salon perfect nails for just $2 a manicure. Yeah, me too. With the Alvin June Manny system, you can say goodbye to expensive services that take hours and hours and love your nails more than ever. I would know I've been doing it for years. Get 20% off your first Manny system with code PERFECTMANNY20 at alvinjune.com slash PERFECTMANNY20. That's PERFECTMANNY20 at alvinjune.com slash PERFECTMANNY20. Welcome back. Let's get back to Barry Cryer and find out what else he'd like to put in his time capsule. Although I'm sure you're beginning to suspect that this might be one of those episodes where the premise of the podcast is less important than the guest. Here I go, Endless Connections. Humphrey Littleton, the great man who did our radio show, as you know. Yes. Uh, I'd forgotten this story. Salerno, we invaded years before Normandy and everything. Yeah, as almost as a And Littleton nearly got charged. He came ashore carrying a gun in one hand and his trumpet in the other. <laughs> this man... More ready for a gig than a fight. An offence. And Humph used to... He loved jokes. Stylish man. And he used to love saying to the audience, uh, do you realise you can buy a packet of sausages... And on the packet is a picture of the chef, Anthony Worrell Thompson. Underneath, it says, prick with a fork. <laughs> <laughs> oh, very well. And fabulous. the night before he went into hospital, Harrogate Conference Centre, we had a great night with a great man, and, oh, shit, he's going into the hospital tomorrow. Mm. We're all round the breakfast table in the hotel the next morning, 
and he had a bowl of prunes on. And he took the first prune and he went... And he looked round the table and said, how can you fuck up a prune? <laughs> a man who never swore the style of the man. Oh, that's fabulous. Just save the, save the swear word for the right moment. I, I told him a joke once. He said, oh, yes, Irish joke, stereotype. Irishman goes for a job at a blacksmith. And the blacksmith says, have you ever shooed a horse? And the Irishman said, no, but I once told a pig to fuck off. <laughs> Humph laughed and laughed. He changed it to piss off, but he used to yeah. tell it to an audience. That stylish man. Yes. Love the jokes. Clue is such an extraordinary thing. It's been an enormous well, part of your life, hasn't it? It's amazing. Clue played Watford Coliseum stage show. So I ring our producer. He said, oh, yeah, Baz, come along. So I go in the bar before. People are saying, what are you doing here? You've been dumped. Are you in this or what? And it was a lovely sort of jokey atmosphere. And then Megan, who's the stage manager, came, Baz, Baz, gave me a raffle ticket. She said, there'll be a, a phony raffle at the end of the show. So I was sitting in the audience. When you've been in a show, Mike, yes. and you, you enjoyed it when you were in it, mm. when you're thinking, what am I doing next? And then he does it. When you're in the audience, you're just taking the whole thing. Yes. And I thought... I relaxed. Mean, it's bloody funny, this show. Bloody is bloody funny. And then they drew the raffle. One, three, seven. And I went, yes. <laughs> oh, the police And they got me on the stage and the atmosphere was so warm. It was Fantastic. lovely. All the guys on the stage going, oh, Baz, and oh, it's lovely. You've had extraordinary producers over the time. Jeffrey Perkins, an old friend of mine, was... Uh, was a producer for a while, yeah. wasn't he? Paul Mayhew. Paul Mayhew. He's got Parkinson's. Yes, he has. And we did a Parkinson's thing at the Albert Hall. Me and Jeremy Hardy and Timbrook Taylor sang with a symphony orchestra. Oh, my God. One song's a tune of another. <laughs> and I said, bloody hell, that's on my CV now. I've sung the symphony orchestra at the Albert Hall. Jeremy Hardy was known for terrible singing, but the violinists obviously didn't know what the joke was. So he rehearses his song, and they're like, what is this noise? He's terrible. What? He's terrible. It was a wonderful moment. Jeremy Hardy, when he went, Battersea Arts Centre, hundreds turned up. Yes. People flew in. He wasn't just a comic, he was a campaigner. He could have died in Palestine. He was on a march, they were bombed. And his memorial lasted five hours he was a one-off, Jeremy. His memorial service was extraordinary, wasn't it? Yeah. The people who spoke, oh, unbelievable. Oh, and Jack D told the story. We were in the wings and John, our producer's doing the warm-up. And I was sitting down and my eyes were closed. And Jeremy put a piece of paper on my chest, do not resuscitate. <laughs> Jeremy said, we're all going to pop off year by year. An old Baz will speak at every memorial. <laughs> <laughs> he should just still be there and just nipping out for a fact. When you're a survivor, we were, Mike Palin and I were talking about it and Tom Stoppard, I was reading recently, he's got a new play out. And uh, he quoted W.H. Auden. And the great man, Auden, said, I think I'm overestimated. And I thought, I think I'm overestimated. The great people I wrote with and worked with, people now tend to put me in the same league. Yeah. And I think, I'm not, I'm arrogant in my humility. <laughs> I'm not Premier League. I was good first division. I could do the job. 
but I was invariably a supporter to these people I wrote with. Yeah. Graham Chapman, Dick Vosburgh, David Nodsley, and the comics I worked with. And I did stand-up, as you know, and all that, but I'm not in their league. But now, as the years go by, and it's nice, but it's not accurate, people put me up there with them. Well, I think you're slightly putting it's yourself It's a nice down. thing to complain about, I know, but... No, I'm, I'm trying to be realistic, Mike. I don't... I was good and competent at what I did, but I wasn't a one-off. And I surprise people now. I say, I'm not a comedian. What? Mm. I say, no. I spent my working life with the comedians. These men and women were just brilliant. They had a, 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 an indefinable element, a funny bone. So I used to call it the X factor. <laughs> I said, I'm not original. I tell stories and sing songs. I said, entertain is a nice word. I said... I'm not a comedian. You're right, then, as much as when you look at the absolute greats, when you look at Tommy Cooper. The originals. They're just completely unique. He was a brilliant magician in a magic circle. You talk to magicians about Tommy Cooper, and they go, bloody good. And he played the fool. He said to me once, there are 100 brilliant magicians in this country, I'm the idiot. Yes. In order to be able to mess it up, you have to be able to do it. That's right. And then he'd suddenly fill the table with bottles and glasses. And the audience go, he can do it. Where are they coming from? I know. Whenever he was interviewed, he'd wear a funny hat and silly boots. And the Parkinson's and people loved it. Towards the end of his life, I saw him interviewed. I'd never seen him like it. And the interviewer said, you've only to walk on the stage and people laugh. And Tommy said, you don't know how much it takes just to walk on. Wow. Never heard him like that. Wow. And then the hideous night when he died on live television. Terrible. And I clicked on just right. Oh, here's Tom. But he was funny that night. And they brought the robe on. He was going to do the thing wearing a robe and there's somebody behind the tabs. He produces ladders and things. Ladders? It's, like... it's actually a tiny ladder. Yes. That's a, that's a very good game. And he sank to his knees. I didn't know how bad it was. No. Uh, but, and then he rolled over backwards and the director of me said go, go to commercials Les Dennis and Dustin G came on Les told me this he said Tom's feet were peeping out oh, they were trying to resuscitate well, were you in the audience? no I was at home yes we did. and the phone rang it was ITM and uh, sorry to bother you Barry I said this is about Tommy Cooper isn't it yes yes have you got Eric Morecambe's phone number <laughs> and I lied can't help you there, sorry. Oh, sorry to bother you. Rang off. Picked up the phone and rang Eric. He said, oh, God, will you watch him, Bass? And he said two things that night I'll never forget. He said, somebody tomorrow will be saying, what a wonderful way to go in front of the audience. He said, that's no bloody wonderful way to go. That was Eric Morgan. Yeah. And then he said, and dear Tom, in front of the audience, I'd never do that. Now, we were old friends... And even at that moment, I made a joke of it. I said, can we have that in writing, sir? How can you promise? And we had a laugh. Three weeks later, in Tewkesbury, with Stan Stennett, the comic on the stage, he's doing audience with. He's got no Ernie, it's just him. Yeah. And he was very funny. And then he went off. Fell all the way down the stairs and they called an ambulance. Wow. And he got off the stage and he died. you think he knew it was coming? Who knows? But I always remember him saying, I'd never do that no. in front of the audience. And he didn't. He no. got off the same. No. That's extraordinary. 
You have been listening to part one of My Time Capsule with Barry Cryer. And as it's part one, I won't keep you by telling you all the usual facts about Acast and subscribing and Twitter and music and the producer and all that stuff. I'll save that till the end of part two. Oh, yeah, I bet you're salivating, aren't you? <laughs> the credits are so exciting, aren't they? Anyway, bum ching bum ching little 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 see you in part two. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher.